0: La, la, la,
1: la, la, and it's shores, la, la, right? Or how do you say it? shores. 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 Uh, shores. Shores.
0: It, Yeah, it's like Shark Wars, some people say. Shark Wars. Uh, shores. Oh. Yes.
1: Portmanteau of Shark Wars. Alright. Hello? Okay. Hello? I'm trying to mine up a little bit. Okay, testing, testing. Oh, yeah it up a little bit. yeah, there we go. Audible. Hey everybody, this is John Seth, and I actually am here alone today in the studio. I am going to be talking uh, to a guy that many of us know, many of us have heard of, and whom I have always loved on Twitter, but actually haven't talked to in person or over the phone, so I'm actually really, really excited to have him on the show today, Shores Provost. Hi there. Welcome.
0: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. So sure. T- tell people a little bit about yourself. What's your background or a programmer, right?
0: Um, originally a physicist. I, I mean, I studied <laughs> physics. And uh, yeah, then you roll into programming because I traveled a lot. So then, you know, you're looking for ad hoc jobs and you become a programmer. That's just what happens. Is that pretty common? physicists? <laughs> I think they either become consultants or they actually do something with physics. That's pretty rare. Um, or they become programmers, yeah, I think so. I feel
1: like a lot of them even become financiers, weirdly
0: yeah that 's another direction to go
1: yeah i think I think since the the advent of the quant in the nineties and uh you know i think I think that that the physicists really found eighties and nineties I think physicists really found a spot sort of in in finance, which is is sort of interesting i didn 't really know that until i 'd read a book uh, recently on a guy who was a physicist who went into finance.
0: Quant was on my bucket list, but I find Bitcoin a lot more interesting. Why is that? Why? Mm-hmm. Why Bitcoin is more interesting? or well, why... What do you
1: find more interesting about Bitcoin than like general finance?
0: Well, it's probably because I, can, I feel that it matches my skills better, right? Because I'm a software developer, so I can actually do something with it and actually change it. I mean, the the entire financial system is too complicated to to make any meaningful contribution to it. You can work on some, you know, point zero 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 one percent arbitrage thing for your whole life and make a lot of money, but you're not going to change anything with Bitcoin. You can do a lot more.
1: I think that's very that's fair. It's probably that. And how did you like first get into Bitcoin? When when did you but it, hear but about it's also it? Like... Past the...
0: Sorry, Sorry, no, 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 it's go also on. Path depend- it's path dependent, right? I mean, for all I know, I would have been working on some obscure system in the financial system, and I would have never heard of Bitcoin, and I would have been super happy. So, Yeah, that's interesting, you isn't
1: it? Like, you, you could have found yourself in a financial institution working on something interesting that does, in fact, have a 0.0001% contribution, and you would have been perfectly good there.
0: Yeah, probably not, But, <laughs> uh, but it's a pretty random path, so... So Bitcoin itself, uh, I always like to say I first ignored it in 2011 because I have an email to a friend where I'm explaining why it's dumb. And um, and then it's like two years later or something that I started paying a little bit more attention to it, like actually listening to podcasts. Uh, yeah, I gave a short presentation to a Ruby meetup as well to, uh, to explain like how to make a Bitcoin transaction in Ruby. You can still find that one. That's nice. 2013. Yeah. I, think I bought it's... a Bitcoin. Sorry. Yeah. I, think ex- I bought a coin in early 2013 and thought I was super smart that yeah. I sold it at the end of 2013. on
1: <laughs> You MC, and all of us. Yeah. I think that so. thinking Bitcoin was dumb in 2013 or 2011 is a positive signal.
0: The reason I thought it was dumb is because I was familiar with uh, World of Warcraft gold and uh, Second Life money. And I knew the biggest problem with that, or at least that I perceived was that the company still controlled it? I wouldn't. Use, I didn't know the word centralized or anything like that. But the company controlled it, and they they didn't want there to be a free floating exchange rate. They couldn't stop it. There was. You had all these farms in China, you know, people uh, collecting points and selling gold online, but it was undesirable, and they could basically stop it at any time. So I assume Bitcoin was something like that, and that's why you know I didn't pay attention to it.
1: Yeah. So I, I was selling World of Warcraft gold. Bitcoin for a while. Even did you know that?
0: Very cool. Yeah, and, no, and I that was—I mean—that was—that
1: was interesting to me because I would have to go online every day, and I would have a list of people who are actually buyers of the gold, and I would—you know—we'd meet them in the game, and then we'd—we'd—we ex- do the exchange. And
0: so this is like a local bitcoins, but then inside
1: inside of World of Warcraft, yeah. Which is interesting because it's—it's essentially remittance, right? Like they could, for example, convert that into their local currency if they found someone who's willing to exchange either the bitcoins or the World of Warcraft gold. Yes, it's it's really oh, weird.
0: So that's, <laughs> or quite a few steps removed. Yeah, it
1: is. But it's it is a remittance corridor of sorts. I remember Blizzard would actually do a lot of basically banning of accounts in order to mitigate the uh, sort of the mining operation.
0: Yeah, I'm sure that that that's what I was aware of. That you know these companies didn't like you know their in-game currency being used as. A, as a vehicle for money laundering and god knows what. Are you a game uh, were you a gamer or are you a gamer? No, I was until I was seventeen or eighteen. Okay. Then I completely stopped.
1: The reason I ask is because I think the I think the gaming industry right now, I don't think there's ever been a more interesting sort of economy in gaming than there is at the moment. And the reason I say is digital assets in games right now are they're nothing but signals. Uh, Rocket League is a really good example. You have like wheels and cars and stuff that people are, are buying for real money, and they're exchanging mm-hmm. in game, and they're doing it with Bitcoin and other stuff. Um, but basically, like you can sell your items in game, and they're going for quite a bit. And there's but that's actually not exchanges, new, right? That's ten, no.
0: happened ten years ago,
1: right? It did. I mean, World of Warcraft characters and stuff. But like right now, it's highly liquid, and I think Bitcoin gives a really, really cool, uh, different sort of way to deal with it because it used to be that like when I was doing World of Warcraft Gold before Bitcoin, you would use PayPal and then you would hope to God that the person didn't charge back. Mm-hmm. Now, with Bitcoin, so, so you must be skeptical.
0: So you must be skeptical then as well of projects that try to sell in-game, or try to put in-game items on the blockchain. I mean, I could, you know, it's kind of like a rare peppy extended, I guess. so You have cross-chain or cross-game items, but... I'm not sure if it So I think sense. I was really
1: bullish on the idea of blockchain game tokens for a while. Um, I, you know, I, I do think that there's a place for it in cards. hmm Like, I think Magic the Gathering, for example, would do really well with an online sort of blockchain game. I think they would make a I wallet. Actually,
0: I actually met someone at a meetup a few years ago who was working on a Magic the Gathering exchange uh, for Bitcoin. And I think he was aware of the irony of of that. Oh, you really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Basically, a reverse
1: reverse Mount Gox. I would like to see that because I mean, I think the thing is like one of the difficulties of these cards is the escrow portion, right? So like right now, if if you're Wizards of the Coast and, and someone exchanges a card, like you're kind of escrowing both, like you're you're escrowing the card and somehow the money has to get to the person. Um, so like one of one of those transactions could go badly. For a lot of these game economies, there's been a lot of sort of robust. Uh, infrastructure built up in them, uh, you know, in order to make sure that those transactions go well. But mm-hmm. if someone's exchanging a card, like an in-game card, and let's say they're doing it online, um, let's say it's an online in-game card, there's there's no reason that transaction has to go really well. And I, I think that something like Counterparty actually kind of mitigates a lot of that, where you can have uh, people actually exchange cards one for one in exchange for value, which is kind of neat.
0: Yeah. I've always wondered whether these game companies really don't want any kind of trade to happen with the outside world or whether they just want to be perceived as not wanting that to happen.
1: Right. Yeah. That's, that's, uh... And
0: that'll decide the outcome of whether this whole like, on-chain or blockchain-powered uh, token uh, game token exchanges will work. Because if it's really just about perception, then it could make sense from a legal point of view from a gaming company to say, well, we have nothing to do with this. This is all happening on a blockchain outside of us
1: well then that, that brings me to my question like would if you're a gaming company doing that sort of thing, then would you want uh you know w- would you build it on Ethereum or would you be hosting your own blockchain because I think I actually have some pretty good ideas for how they could mitigate a lot of that and actually host it in a way that is sort of not hosting it
0: I think they w- wouldn't care like you maybe you'd initially do it on Ethereum because you might have a little bit more tools or familiarity, and then maybe you'll move on to something else. I mean, I know that uh, Giacomo Ozuko is working on this uh, RGB coin, sort of replacement for color coins. Um, you know, and that could work on Bitcoin quite efficiently, but it's just not done yet. Right. Uh, you could also use Counterparty. I mean, doesn't I mean, really I, matter. I know I what I what would do start...
1: is I would, if I were these gaming companies, I would, I would fork Counterparty. I would change all of the uh, the names in it, and I would, I would remove Bitcoin from the, the decks. And I would make all of the coins one to one. I would remove the ability of users to create new tokens, put them all like all of that ability into one wallet, and basically just use that as a distribution me- method for these, uh, you know, coins.
0: So I'm not super familiar with how Party works, but it use it doesn't it use the same Omni thing that tether also uses? No, 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 no. Omni uses Mastercoin. Okay, that's different. Yeah, but, but whatever powers uh, Counterparty, yeah, you would definitely clone it and not use Counterparty itself. Right. That that's be done.
1: that's what's really funny to me is I think the Counterparty network. I look at it and I think it's a really cool project, but I don't think it has a lot of use because if I were if I were consulting, I've thought about this. If I were consulting with a company on what they should do, I think that I would just tell them to fork it and make make modifications that sort of make it a Counterparty of one.
0: Yeah, because there's no, as far as I know, anyway, there's no additional security that the Counterparty system gives you all the security it has is from Bitcoin to the degree that it has securities. But if you clone it, it's not less safe. Right. right. Because it's not like you're adding, I don't know, something like Liquid sidechain where you have a whole hardware setup and then all sorts of tricks that, you know, might make it more attractive to use Liquid than to clone it. Um, you don't have that with Counterparty, I think. Correct.
1: Uh, and, and the beauty of that also is that, like, if if you're, let's say – Wizards of the Coast, you know, it gives you the ability actually to, like, reverse transactions because you could hard-code transactions that you don't want, uh, you know, done in there and such, which is interesting. If someone, like, hacks somebody's wallet, you could actually give someone back all of their cards. Mm -hmm. So I think in-game assets, though, I don't know, like, would World of Warcraft want to put their swords on the blockchain?
0: I I don't know. I don't think so. Well, why would they care? I mean, if they think they're going to live forever, why would they want to... Why would they want their stuff to be outside of their own control? Right. And, and why would they accept stuff from other games? Maybe they would. I don't know. That's That just depends on the dynamics in, in the whole game world. Right. You know, if they think it it's make business sense, and they'll do it.
1: Right. And I do think – I think that's like a lot of the, the Bitcoin stuff. I think that people think that Bitcoin and, and blockchains generally solve human coordination problems, and they don't. So, you know, getting – like World of Warcraft or something like that. Like th- the only value that that sword has is that Warcraft continues to be a going concern.
0: Yeah. Well, the idea then of putting this on the on a, on a blockchain is to say, well, if you know, if that company goes away, um, some other company could decide to honor it, or not even a company, uh, an open source community could decide to honor it, and then they would have this objective, you know place to, to you know that they would agree on right uh, though i think you could do the same with the snapshot of a database you know that's signed by by the company absolutely right and i don't you know again i don't see why you'd
1: have an incentive to even accept that as like an open source project unless you were just trying to like suck all of the the old warcraft users in
0: well if you look at like there's a lot of these old games from the 90s that were abandoned right transport tycoon et cetera, and they all have their open source communities working on it now those games weren't massive online multiplayer games. They were very small games. Transport. But tycoon? I can't imagine that.
1: Yeah, have you never played that? No, I'm going oh. to. I love tycoon games.
0: Yeah, Transport Tycoon. You you built your own little train imperium. That was my favorite. Uh...
1: I I am a train guy. So Railroad Tycoon Two is mine. I play I play it every night. Right before bed. Yeah, so it's like a pornography.
0: A like, it's, you're also building railroads and air, and airports and 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 you know, cities automatically kind of grow based on your activity. Uh, you can even uh, you can lower the land around a, a young city, um, and then a couple of decades later, when you know the city is much bigger and it fills up the uh, low lying area, you can actually flood it. Uh, it was a lot of fun. Oh, right. I think they had an overflow boat.
1: Awesome! I am going to check this out. That's yeah.
0: interesting. So they, they have an open source version of it, or how does it work? My guess is they reverse engineered it, but I think it's now maintained by open source people. I haven't played these things in twenty years, so I wouldn't know.
1: But I wonder if Railroad Tycoon Two has that because that, honestly, that's my favorite but, game. I love that game, Sid Meier's. so if
0: you look at a long enough timescale, you know, you might be in a situation where there is some massive online role playing game or whatever it is. And the company just abandons it. You know, it's not a commercial success anymore, but there's still like 10,000 hardcore people that love it. And now they want to continue, but they need to somehow agree on the state. You know, and and how do you agree with 10,000 people? Well, either a snapshot of a database or maybe somebody did issue some tokens on a a blockchain. Right. It's not blockchain offers a tremendous amount of security there, but... It could just be, you know, could be convenient.
1: So that's an interesting. That's an interesting perspective. That like maybe that's the efficiency. Is that when the project gets abandoned, someone can pick it up. I, again, I don't know that like Warcraft would be like highly incentivized to it. Although maybe the once that like let's say that database, uh, if it were signed and agreed upon in terms of its state, maybe that would be what the open source project does.
0: Yeah, I, I'm not sure, but it definitely wouldn't be a billion-dollar opportunity to, like, start a company that puts games on the blockchain. That's right. not what I'm saying. Not, not I'm like CryptoKitties. it might Kitties. be useful in some way, way but. <laughs> CryptoKitties just well, finished. CryptoKitties has that philosophy, I think. Their, their idea is to, to sort of make these tools generically available. Right. But, they, yeah, we'll see.
1: They got funded uh, $15 million, I think, uh, close November 1st, which is, I thought, really interesting.
0: Yep. Yeah, there's a... I think they, they did a podcast with Laura Shin. It was interesting. Yeah, they...
1: I mean, I, I look at the numbers on daily users on DAP Radar. Have you seen this? It's one of my favorites.
0: Yeah, they they talked about that too, and they basically also admitted Like, it just... It's almost zero. Yeah. Uh, so, it is a long-term play, you know. for for a VC point of view, you know, they just throw $60 million at it, and maybe it works out, maybe it doesn't. Right. They don't care. Yeah. That, I wouldn't want to spend so my life working on that. No, me neither. <laughs> Me neither,
1: uh, but that's, that's, that's yeah, yeah, that's true. That is the state though of like most Ethereum dApps. So I thought we could talk a little bit about like shit coins and ICOs and just kind of like the value of those generally, like, you know, pull them out of gaming, which I think is probably the best case that I've heard made for a lot of this stuff um, is in gaming. Yeah. And it's not a great case as you just heard here. So what's the ICO market seems to be gone and dead.
0: So both ICOs and altcoins were sort of going up uh, at the end of last year, right? November, yeah. December. Yes. And I was getting um, text messages and some forums that I'm on and people were like, you know, pretending to be experts. Sometimes they would be pretending to be experts and they would say, oh, this is a great opportunity. Um, or you know. And then I would look at it and I would go to the website and let's say this ICO might be about energy on the blockchain. And you look at the team page and nobody has any experience in the energy sector or any experience in the like heavy regulator sector. Right. That's like a two second thing. Then you start looking at the press releases, you, you know, that they link to all the media logos that they have and they're all press releases. Right. And with no comments on it. Sometimes I've seen, um, I think it was like English, no, probably Italian te- language press releases on a German website. Like that's the level of, you know, sophistication there. So I would point that out, and then some people would say thanks, and other people would say, what about this one? And I click on that one, and I go to the website and do the same thing. <laughs> it's just well, th-
1: what's yeah, funny it's... to me is is like I think people would say like this sort of idea with the ICO is that where there's where there's smoke, there's fire, right? and the idea was pretty simple like how can you have how can you have all of these people building icos and building these platforms and not have any of them work out and i would get that a lot like come on dude like you're being such a pessimist
0: no that's true there might be one successful one it's just that you won't be able to pick it
1: well what have you heard any ideas in the ico space that like tickle your nipple
0: at all no but i mean what i would imagine is somebody might get lucky If, like, you know, this company gets $100 million and they're smart, turn it into actual dollars or Bitcoin, and they, you know, hire a bunch of random engineers, and one of those engineers turns out to be super smart and, like, pivots the whole thing into a billion-dollar company. But, you know, what are the odds of that, of of you being the one, you know, being lucky enough? And then even then you bought at the wrong moment because you you could have bought those tokens much cheaper. Well, I don't so no, know I don't the think there's, there's anything value, there, you know. And the other thing is, I've noticed the other thing is that people would ask you specifically, right? Say, "Hey, Shorts, what do you think of of this coin? Isn't that amazing?" And, and then my first response would be, "Why am I hearing this from you and not the other way around?" Right. Right. I don't want to be super arrogant here. No, but, no. Where, where did you where did you yeah. hear about this in a Facebook group that it's filled with people non, like you? It's always people who are technically somewhat sophisticated, like not super naive, right? but but definitely not, ex- they don't know anything about Bitcoin. So, and that's what this camera's target. Right? They try to look for people who have sort of heard about it, who, you know, know friends who are really excited about the technology and then they think that's their opportunity in, and then they, they, you know, these companies would write long blog posts, you know, with all sorts of technical, technobabble and, and some, sometimes some fud about what problems Bitcoin Apparently has that they can solve, and and that works. Yeah, I feel
1: like Bitcoin's had sort of like these epochs where it you know people will say Bitcoin will be perfect for, and then insert some kind of noun, right? So for a while, remember when notarization was like the thing everyone was really excited about, mm-hmm. which which made me laugh my ass off because like who's ever been excited about notarization except Ukrainians?
0: So one project that I was actually excited about, like, three years ago, and I still think might work. I'm not saying that's a billion-dollar idea, right? But sure. And this was the typical gold on the blockchain thing. And what they would do, let me remember this correctly. They set up a foundation, and the foundation actually owned physical gold. And they had, like, all the, you know, all the receipts, et cetera, et cetera, um, that they put on the website. And, and basically the, no, not a foundation, sorry, a trust and the trust said uh, the beneficiaries of the trust are the you know the people who inherit from this genesis transaction uh of a colored coin and so the trust would kind of define its own beneficiaries that way which is kind of cool i think but doesn't that
1: have the same like the the problem that you originally criticized with like world of warcraft see i mean this seems like for me my big issue with like a no, tether no because the
0: trust the, the trust doesn't like you know just exists right I'm not super expert on trust law, but the whole idea of a trust is that it sort of outlives any company that, you know, it's not owned by anyone. It's just a thing that exists.
1: Yeah, yeah, but the reason I ask is because like the feds can sue <laughs> can seize their, can gold. seize the assets of the trust. Yeah, 100. percent. Yeah. So the absolutely. instant that like that, that's tether or gold trust, whatever it is, is used in money laundering, guess what happens? The Fed shows up and takes their entire store of gold.
0: Yeah, I I I I would agree with you. I think that's the main weakness of it.
1: Uh it, it seems like the weakness there is the fact that it's highly liquid.
0: Weirdly. You, you mean that the new thing. Yeah, because the cool thing about it is that now I would be able to trade gold with somebody else, you know, and as long as we both trust this trust, uh we don't need to actually get permission from anyone to do this. Right. Um but but but, it's kind of like a tether right it, I guess it's most comparable comparable with tether. It works great until it explodes, yeah, I do think that
1: like but there it, there is a place in the world for like Goldman Sachs, for example, doing that kind of thing though I, I honestly like that wouldn't that wouldn't surprise me if a big bank got into like offering that sort of thing,
0: yeah, but I am very skeptical about these regulated um these regulated stable coins because. They would have to, you know, KYC everybody who probably everybody who touches the stablecoin. And as far as I'm concerned, if you're trying to move it, then your transaction isn't really settled because they might, you know, remote freeze your balance at any moment. And the whole feature of Tether is that it's such a Wild West thing that you you know nobody's going to randomly seize it, so it's more fungible. Except that Tether's done that.
1: Have they remote frozen? Yeah, tethers? so there's a there was a case where yeah, there was a an exchange that was like, hacked. A huge number of Tethers were stolen. So what they did is they invalidated the address in Mastercoin because Mastercoin is really only used for Tether, by the way. So mm-hmm. they invalidated the address so that nobody, you know, like basically anybody using it wouldn't uh, you know, those Tethers are no longer in existence. They're just written I off. I
0: didn't know that. Yeah. So that's good news for those new stablecoins then, because apparently this is not a big enough it's not enough reason for people to stop using it. Yeah, people. People have that was used my it. main concern with the regulated stablecoins is that you know you're getting too much. Uh, like anybody who actually needs it doesn't doesn't want that kind of scrutiny. Yeah,
1: I generally wouldn't think they would either. But you know, it seems it seems like uh, you know that that is the case. But the other thing is, uh, Shores, eventually there's going to be an index of stablecoins, which is going to be odd. But also, I think that that kind of removes a lot of the KYC stuff because you'll be able to hold that index and trade that index anywhere, I think.
0: Yeah, I have no idea. I mean, you know, the ERC-20 token, as far as I know, can remote-free stuff. So it's weird. If you're holding an index and then parts of your index get remote frozen, uh, then any smart contract you're trying to build on top of that, you know, anything like an atomic swap with multiple coins in it, and one of them suddenly gets messed with, that sounds like a headache. It would be, but so it, the beauty you, of it is it that, an index. The,
1: that yeah. priced into that index would be that coin. So now your coin you're holding wouldn't be a dollar. It would be like 93 cents or 96 cents or something like that, mm-hmm. which which we'll is see. better than the entire thing exploding and losing everything. And that's that worries me. Does that worry you about Tether that like it's such a huge part of the Bitcoin economy? It worries me.
0: Mm, no. Well, I mean, we've seen Bitcoin drop by 80% this year, so I don't think Tether potentially exploding matters. Really? By, would it would it really like knock it down even further? Or what do you, I think or it would be catastrophic for the whole.
1: E- yeah, I think it'd be catastrophic for the whole ecosystem. Because here's sure. a, here's the thing: like a lot of I think the way that I watch traders do this is that like when Bitcoin starts dropping, everyone finds shelter in Tether, right? I don't know what par- portion of the economy, but I wouldn't be surprised if it's like twenty percent of the money in Bitcoin moves into Tether when Bitcoin. Is how much single. Tether
0: is there? It's like a billion dollars, or more, it's more than that. Let me let me it might be seven billion. Okay, that's a lot. But like compared to daily trading volume or compared to the amount of bitcoin that's that's out there. Okay, two point two billion. So that's not a lot compared to the amount of bitcoin that's moving around, right? Correct. So if that all disappears, then two billion disappears. That is a lot. (laughs) That's true.
1: Yeah, but it's also it's, it's also a lot of the, the very highly liquid traded, like my guess, because you know like when you're trading Bitcoin, a lot of the coins are moving back and forth between accounts, like HFT guys and stuff like that, right? So like if you see five mm-hmm. billions in coins, that might be like maybe $50 million. Yeah. So to me, like for people to lose $2.2 2 billion in a day would be crazy. I, I think that that would be devastating.
0: Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. I'm not an economist, uh, and I always say never a dull day in Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, well, that's uh, true.
0: That, but that's... it is the type of event, and I'm not saying like anything specific about Tether. I don't know anything about them that you know says they would explode. I'm just saying something like that will probably explode eventually. If it's not Tether, then that's another one.
1: It's Bitcoin. So I feel like all things that are possible in the universe will happen. Yes. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. <laughs> Um, yeah, I mean, where do you think the? But at ICO the same stuff... time, my
0: guess is that that um, as you know, the SEC wants you know more surveillance and compliance in a lot of regulated exchanges. Once they have all that in place, they might also get better at just you know moving fiat directly between exchanges and not bothering with the stablecoins. Yeah, because if you're fully compliant anyway, then it shouldn't be that hard to move a couple billion dollars to another to the other side of the world if that other exchange is also super heavy compliant.
1: Yeah, I think that's reasonable. I mean that's that's the way it is now, right? But like even if, if you're moving money from like I don't know, Vanguard to Fidelity, it still takes like three, five days.
0: Yeah, but that can be solved.
1: Yeah. I I do I am curious how the banking infrastructure is gonna my contention with banking infrastructure is that it's gonna look exactly
0: like it does now, but with the Bitcoin. Could be. I mean, it's changed. I mean, online banking didn't exist twenty years ago. Yeah
1: no i I agree with that I think there's i mean there's there's clearly innovations coming. I just don't think that like there's gonna be a lot because Bitcoin. I think it will be a lot because like you know the internet is finally being sort of applied to banking and a lot of the infrastructure we've built for traditional like holding of assets and escrowing of assets and moving of assets a lot of that's gonna continue to exist that that would be my contention uh but you're you're there in Netherlands, the heart of capitalism uh is that would you think the same? I don't know. I mean, I don't know about... Oh, Shores, give me one sec.
0: Shores? So, in the beginning, a couple of years ago, everybody was saying, oh, Bitcoin is making it so much easier to move money than banks. It's like, you know, I had online banking, you know, a long time ago, and it was instant. I could send chat messages to the person I was sending an online transfer to. So... Whereas in the U.S., you guys still had checks and these kind of weird things, so maybe the usability argument was never that strong.
1: Right. Yeah. I, I, that's. Uh, yeah. I, I. I think that. I, I think the. I, I missed a portion of that in there because actually. Uh, okay. The. the, the mic kinda...
0: I, I was saying that the usability argument wasn't very wasn't very strong in where I live because the usability of the banking system was much better. Um, Oh yeah, but yeah. What I find a stronger argument is is the, um, the fact that the credit card system just seems fundamentally broken to me. Uh, I don't know if people care enough about that brokenness, but the idea that you're giving somebody 16 digits and they can just pull money from you, and the only way you can sort of deal with the fraud is by you know browser fingerprinting, like total surveillance, and uh, you know. Telling merchants like if you know if you don't do these and these things, then if you if you get a charge back, then it's your problem.
1: No, I, I agree with that. I, I, I think don't
0: think that's a good system and Bitcoin solves that because you have a push based money system.
1: Yeah, and I, just, I, know, I think you with you credit cards what's interesting is that the insurance for all of that, like the fraud though, is you know, three or four percent. But there's these high yeah, but, fraud segments of, of credit cards. And I agree. I think that, that I think that, that fundamentally like internet money has never been solved until Bitcoin.
0: My theory is that if something like the GDPR, you know, the European privacy law, if that was applied aggressively for online shopping, like buying plane tickets, if they were to say, hey, you cannot do browser fingerprinting because, you know, it's a huge privacy violation. Oh, and, and you cannot ask for details that you do not strictly need for the purchase. You know, so if somebody is ordering an an ebook, you're not allowed to ask their home address because you don't need their home address because it's a digital book. If they were to do something like that, then the ability to detect fraud would just be go to zero and the right. credit card system would completely break. So that's, you know, what I'm trying to lobby for, essentially. That's, that's because true. Because then the playing field changes because Bitcoin doesn't have that type of fraud problem. That's but true. if you can get rid of fraud by just destroying privacy, then yeah.
1: So do you think the GDPR is a little heavy-handed, though? Because, like, I think that it seems to me that while it's trying to solve some of the privacy stuff, which I think is great, it seems to get a lot of it – it makes it very difficult for anybody doing advertising or anything else, which maybe that's the point.
0: Well, we don't know if it's heavy-handed until, like, it's gone to the Supreme European Court a couple of times, right? We'll see how heavy-handed it actually is. It might not be.
1: But I do, uh, I do find your, your contention interesting. If, like, if, if we cannot hold data as vendors for things that don't require us to, like, take a, an address – you're right. The system is essentially broken then. You do need internet cash.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, so yeah, that's why I say lobby for that. Um, but the GDPR is, I'm just watching it from a distance, I guess. But for me, it's interesting to see how it's going to interact with some of these things. So, like what I talked about, the, the payment security is probably broken. But the other thing is the financial surveillance system that we have in the world, especially in the West, right? We have anti money laundering rules that your bank has to report suspicious transactions. And I've actually asked my bank, though not formally yet, I'm probably going to, to tell me which transactions they've reported on me. Right. Because, you know, based on GDPR, I have the right to know that, and I never consented to it, to them sharing information. Now, they'll probably answer, well, you know, we have to because of this privacy law. Uh, Sorry, because of this surveillance law. But then, you know, and I'd need some help from some European lawyers if I ever wanted to pull that off, but I could try and argue, well, look, uh, you know, this GDPR thing is a human right. And it's like a very important thing. Whereas this, um, this, this anti-money laundering fantasy that you guys have, like there's no actual, you know, specific reason for it. Uh, especially, you know, if I'm asking six months after the fact as you know, we'll see. I'd like to, I'd like to see these two things battle each other out. The, the trend towards total surveillance versus the law that says, you know, we want total privacy, it is interesting. to I me this
1: sort of dichotomy where the government says we can surveil you, but no company can have any information on you at all.
0: Well, it's typical for Europe, you know, not to be too libertarian here, but it's very typical for Europe to bully companies, you know? You know, they, they have all these massive fines for Microsoft and Google and these privacy fines. Most of these fines end up with companies, whereas, you know, when... When they slap the government on the wrist, it's, it's more, more of a slap on the wrist so far. We'll see if that stays that way. But, for example, here where I live is um, the tax authorities. They, they have this thing. If you're a sole provider, then you need a VAT number. So VAT is like sales tax, essentially. Right. And that VAT number goes on everything. It goes on in your invoices. It goes on your website. You have to, like, put it everywhere. That's fine, except the VAT number is not a random number. It could have been a random number. Why not? You know, they could just give you a random number. They don't do that. It's your, um, it's basically your citizen number. Really? Yes. but Plus like two letters or something like that. <laughs> and that's been the known problem for like a decade. And the tax authorities have always said, no, nah, we don't care. But now that GDPR is there, they, they did actually get a like an official notice from the uh, privacy authority saying, hey, you need to fix this. So your VAT number is,
1: is like a social security number would be basically? Yeah,
0: essentially. Yeah. So it's perfect for identity fraud. Um wow. and so they've basically now been given a slap on the wrist and then their reply was yeah it's too much work to fix it well we may or may not fix it like in 2021 or something like that Really? So so then what I would like to see but that's never going to happen is is basically the privacy authority going after the tax authority and 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 saying okay uh, the maximum fine for a GDPR violation like a willing you know consistent thing that it's is insane. totally 4% of of your revenue what is 4% of the Four, revenue of the Dutch tax you No, know, It's
1: more than that. It's 4% of your revenue or like $2 billion or some like $200 million, whatever's higher. <laughs> something like well, that. Well, what
0: do you it's, think is higher? Yeah, 4% or probably 4%. 4%. total tax revenue of the Netherlands, that's like but isn't that $10 just, billion. Dollars, isn't something? that
1: just moving government, like money from government agency to another government agency? It would yes, be it funny. It, but it, it would be, be hilarious funny, yeah. to me if, if uh, what ended up happening as a result of GDPR was... That the privacy authority
0: ended up with all of the government's money. Well, and and you could go further because what these um, what what they're going to try and do against private businesses again, like sort of double standard here. If if you're a private business, you know, let's say McDonald's does this, then McDonald's will probably you know have their lawyer say, well, it was just one franchise doing it, right? And then the government would be saying, well, no, you know, McDonald's is a global company, so we're going to use four percent of the global revenue of mcdonald's not just that one thing okay but tax authorities are exchanging information they're collaborating so you could argue that it's four percent of all global tax revenue (laughs) i don't think it's going to happen but you know if you had the same standard i'm I'm looking forward to see this battle out yeah i think the gdpr i think it was counting against the government yeah i don't think that they thought that
1: they were themselves violating
0: anything yeah, but they're the worst violators, and also the most dangerous violators. Because you know, a private business. I'm, you know, and I'm skeptical of you know the things that Google and Facebook know, and that the, the, they can do a lot of harm with that. But they cannot like arrest you. My fear with Facebook and Google is that they will be able
1: to, and that yes, sounds really that's conspiratorial. But no, it's not. But I, I think that there's going to be a day where, in some place the result of Facebook colluding with government is going to be that if you put something up on Facebook that is considered mean or offensive or whatever we're going to use as a word, the police will show up at your house and start like interviewing you.
0: Yes, and and worse than that, if, if you're doing, or maybe, I don't know if it's worse, but if you're doing something that, you know, if they have any incriminating evidence against you, they could then start blackmailing you and basically saying, "Okay, we're going to report this and this to the police if you do not pay us this and this amount." Now, you could say, "You know, that's organized crime and extortion," but you know they can find some really sophisticated algorithmic way that doesn't is not as obvious as what I just described. Right. You know they could they could find a way to make you pay money I, for the them not. Gonna... <laughs> Okay, hey. please, but it has to be a little bit more subtle than what I just said. But hey, I, there sure people
1: and we, globally. We, we, want, we want to inform you that we plan on providing uh, information to the police or information to your authorities. We've begun this policy uh, for people that have committed something like a digital KYC violation and uh, and you know the only way to prevent it is if you pay10,000 dollars to have your data deleted, which we're happy to do.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm not sure how it'll play out, but, uh, you know, that's probably not the most likely dystopian scenario there. But I like these
1: companies, they're a very
0: big, very global, uh, they can do a lot of harm.
1: Well, I'm waiting for, like, you know, so here's the thing, like, President Trump is president. What happens when someone like President Trump, who people hate, that, you know, are at Reddit, release uh, that person's, you know, history of looking at pornography on Reddit? Yeah, that will happen. It absolutely will. I guarantee it will. That's a really strange, terrible world.
0: I think in the case of Trump, it won't have any impact. But
1: In, tr- in Trump's uh, world, it but won't from matter. <laughs> oh, he looks at porn. He'll, what he'll probably do is uh, shore up the porn lobby, and he'll get a lot of like uh, porn stars voting for him. I watch the best porn. <laughs> Hot girls in miniskirts. It's what Trump likes. Um, but yeah, yeah, like I, I do... I do find that I find that sort of the, the dystopian future, you know, based on the social media stuff, to be a little problematic. And GDPR is interesting to me because, and I'm with you, I am curious as to how it's going to sort itself out. I think that it's it's com- compliance with it is very difficult, mm-hmm. particularly for overseas companies.
0: Well, well, we'll see. I mean, there's also a lot of lobbyists that are spreading foot around about it. Probably, well, you no, know, or, I, or I haven't heard anything from lobbyists. I've only. Reasons.
1: But I do know quite a bit about integrating with it and having to comply with it. It's a very heavy-handed sort of law.
0: Yeah. Well, again, we'll have to see if it's really upheld, right? It, the law can be very heavy-handed, but if it's not enforced, like you know, if you go to to a court and say this is unreasonable, yeah, then it depends on what happens. It's, you might eventually have something like the right to advertise. Maybe that becomes a right. Right. Yeah, it's, it's interesting
1: because, like, in America, we have a number of things going on, like, uh, that are heavy-handed as well, but eventually will certainly happen, such as uh, every state now is able to levy, t- like,
0: sales taxes on online e-commerce businesses. We have a very heavy-handed government in general, so that's probably also what people, like, don't understand. At least most European governments, and definitely the Netherlands, is not as heavy-handed. So you, you think the United States is a little
1: bit more heavy-handed than even those governments?
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, if you do something if, if you violate some laws, you spend a lot of time in prison and it's going to be very unpleasant. Yeah, we do we do like the prisons here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So,
1: I mean, are, what do you guys in prisons in Netherlands or is it more like uh is it sort of a like vacation?
0: I haven't been in them, so I can't vouch for them. Mm. Uh,
1: I know in Norway they're like wonderful vacation type uh, resorts.
0: Oh yeah. So well, let's put it this way. Um, the Netherlands has been closing prisons for decades now because the number of convictions is going down, as is the crime rate. So it's not a lower uh, percentage or anything like that. Um, so, do you, do you so think
1: they, that a reason that you guys have a low crime rate is because so, you have so many lesbians in the
0: Netherlands? No, it's going down everywhere. It's going down in the U.S. too. Tons. I mean, you guys have this crazy war on drugs that's skewing the skewing the stats, but in general, it's all going down.
1: But you guys have tons uh, of dykes.
0: We have dykes.: Get it? Yes, uh, okay.: <laughs> I had to get there, okay., <laughs> Anyhow, go on. So, so Norway, um, Norway has very humane prisons, apparently, and one of the problems they started running into is with because of the European in, in, uh, integration, you have all these foreigners coming in Norway, and then some of them, you know, commit crimes, yeah. and they end up in Norwegian prison. Now you you have to be some pretty hardcore criminal to end up in a Norwegian prison as far as I know, but some people do. But then they they realize that, you know, their family wants to visit. But have you ever been in Norway? It's like really expensive. And and so they basically figured it's it's sad, you know, it's not fair for these people to be stuck in a Norwegian prison because no their family can never visit them, so they figured let's let's just put a prison in one of those cheaper developing countries like the Netherlands. And so they, they, they're renting prisons in the Netherlands. For that reason, really, and they had to to actually train the guards to be more decent, relatively. So, for example, apparently in Norway, they have to knock before they open your cell door and things like that. For real? Uh, so, so by Norwegian standards, Dutch prisons are barbaric. I'm not or, decent. Or not.
1: That's amazing.
0: Yeah. Whereas I'm pretty sure they're like very humane compared to you know what's happening in the U S. Oh, the U S.
1: Yeah, the U S. is a scary place when when it comes to prisons. Like people die in prisons; they get
0: stabbed. Uh, Whitey Bulger yeah, I was just killing. I would here. not wish my worst enemies to go there.
1: It's it's really weird, no. and uh, you know I think there's a lot of evidence for like prison guard uh, corruption and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Let's get back to Bitcoin. Like you're, you've done a lot yeah.
0: with Core, right? Recently, yes. So um, about a year and a half ago, I think. Yeah, but a year and a half ago, I made like an accidental pull request to Bitcoin Core because I, I ran into some obscure. Thing with a test that I wanted to improve, and it's very addictive for some reason. <laughs> as, as you start making more pull requests, because I don't know if you've ever used GitHub, but you have these notifications, and they show you when people have replied to your pull request, and and uh, and because Bitcoin Core is all over the world, uh, you know you get a lot of comments and a lot of feedback from different places, and and you know then you learn as you're changing because people will tell you, hey, this part of your C code is wrong, and they'll and then you fix it and then you get comments from another person. So it's it's quite addictive. So I started doing more of it. And I was starting to you know ask myself, like, okay, how can I keep doing this? And what I thought about back then, this is a year ago, was hey, maybe I should do Ethereum smart contract review as a pay thing. Right. Um but sort of right around the same time, and I was getting close to actually being able to do that. Um, but right around the same time, the whole uh, SegWit 2x drama happened and blew up. And, and after that, um, Blockchain.info uh, offered to sponsor my open source work. Really? And so, yeah, so that's great. I mean, I, I used to work for them up until about half a year before that. So you're so a paid. It's, it's not
1: like that came out of the blue. An actual paid Bitcoin developer at this point.
0: Yes. Nice. Yes. Congrats, Basically, yours. I can do whatever. Whatever I want, as long as it's open source. So that's really great. So I'm quite happy with that because otherwise I would have been reviewing Ethereum smart contracts.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people don't realize that that's kind of how open source works. Is it's sort of like race car driving. People tag their bitch and they say, that's, that's the one we're going to give money to. Yeah, I guess.
0: Um, uh, well, I mean, there's different developers with different motives, right? Some people are working on a specific project. And as part of that project, they they see some problems in Bitcoin Core and they fix them plus some additional time that they put into it. Right. Other people might be financially independent and just do whatever they want. And then, you know, you have the Blockstream conspiracy, et cetera, et cetera.
1: I love the Blockstream conspiracy. That's my favorite. Yeah, they're great people. I think I think um, anybody who's worked and actually done code stuff for Bitcoin Core realizes how stupid it is, though.
0: Yes. So my theory about Blockstream is that it is what happens when you give a bunch of nerds infinite money. Yeah. They just nerd out. That's it. There's no conspiracy. Like, everything can be explained by the simple theory of giving nerds infinite money.
1: Correct. I agree. No, I mean, it's interesting to me because, like, you, you contribute to Bitcoin Core. It's not like... It's not like Blockstream comes up and is like, ah, Blockstream has arrived and ah, we don't like this one for these reasons. It's more like Blockstream also contributes to Bitcoin Core.
0: <laughs> so I had a discussion with someone about a year ago as well, sort of around the SegWit 2 x drama, because that's when people have these debates. And it was about, you know, Blockstream's power in this thing. And and, and their concern was, hey, you know, if you know, they were basically saying, okay. Anything that's not approved by uh, by CPA and Maxwell is like you know you have to go through them so it's kind of centralized and And I was like, okay, let's see if we see if we can prove that right if we can so so the way you do that in science is falsifiability right. So what I would say is, okay, find me a single example where um, they are abusing their power. So that example could be a pull request um, by someone. And everybody loves it, but Sipa uh, comes in and says, I don't like it, doesn't explain it, just says, I don't like it, and refuses to explain it, and it never gets merged. Or the opposite, where he makes a pull request himself, and everybody says, this is terrible, don't do this, and like gives very specific feedback, and he's like, fuck you, I'm the boss, I'm going to merge this. And I basically challenged him, like, give me one example of, of something like that. And he couldn't find it. And I haven't found it either. And right. So that tells me that, that you know... Well, not the, to mention Segwit
1: 2x. Uh, I mean, the, the Segwit implementation was a, a user-activated software.
0: Blockstream had shit to do with that. Right. I think at the time, you know, that was before I was active in Bitcoin Core, but many of the core developers were not happy with that.
1: Yeah, they, um, were, they were very scared of how UASF would work.
0: I, I was also not happy about it. Um, well trying to remember i had some arguments on reddit with people uh about it um i i still think that if it had come to a confrontation it would not have worked because it was not obvious because it was a hard fork essentially why do you say that because if you're forcing a soft fork then your nodes are not following the most proof of work uh, based on the existing rules.
1: Yeah, but that's not really a hard fork because like it's still compatible with the old the old versions. All they were doing was saying miners that didn't start flagging this would be like removed.
0: Yeah, but that means you also need to remove everything that builds on it. So let's say the first block comes in on August 1, and that block signals SegWit. Okay, all the UASF nodes are happy, so they'll accept the block. Next block comes in, and uh, this does not signal SegWit. Um, so the UASF nodes reject this block. But now a miner that does not know about UASF but is in support of SegWit mines on top of this, this invalid, quote-unquote, block, and he signals SegWit, but he still gets his block rejected because he built on top of a, you know, a forbidden block. Interesting. And so, and so as far as the miners are concerned, they're just building on that chain because it's perfectly valid and it has uh, the most proof of work because now right. it's two blocks. Whereas the UASF folks, you know, you know, maybe they mine one block every every ten blocks, every hundred blocks, depending on you know how much hash power they manage to. commit now at some point, but that makes it a hard fork, right? Well, it, oh. it, I would say that it makes temporarily it, it makes UASF po- it makes
1: a hard fork possible with UASF. It does make me wonder if you're going to implement rules like uh, UASF, why not? Why not just do a hard fork?
0: So what I thought about. And I have no idea if that's actually a good idea, but it's something more <laughs> of um of a soft UASF. Because first of all, let me describe the problem with this UASF, whether or not you call it a hard fork. The problem is you, if you're a user and you decided to, to download a UASF node, you would, you know, you would suddenly not see any new blocks. That's probably fine because then you would just not do anything. Um, but let's say there were blocks on that side, uh, but it was still a minority. Well, then you might think you've received Bitcoin, and you think you've sent Bitcoin, but uh, then you know, on the other side, that didn't happen. So you get all these problems with replay uh, issues and, and all this confusion of what is your actual balance. So it's not a very safe user experience at all. You, you have to stop using it during the during the contention. Um, that makes sense. I, I just don't and, think but, it, it... But their theory was that at some point, uh, the UASF side would win the market, right? And as soon as you win the market, then then despite having... Uh, so if you win the market, then people start mining on top of your site, and then eventually your site becomes longer, and then you wipe out the other chain. Right. Okay. That's really bad for the non-UASF people. So if you're a normal Bitcoin user and you are you know, have no idea that this is going on because you don't follow Tonevase and you don't follow Reddit and you don't speak English, uh, you're using Bitcoin as usual. You think you've received money, and poof, it's gone.
1: I, I think that's a fair critique. I don't think that it's fair to say it's a hard fork, because I don't think it, it really meets
0: any of the criterion for a hard fork. I guess it is at the moment it's happening, right? But after that, it becomes a reorg.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it's a forced reorg,
0: essentially. Or a but forced there wouldn't be a reorg, reorg if they never get a majority hash rate. Yes. So if correct. they always have a minority hash rate, then then it's a hard fork. But as soon as they get the majority, then, then it's not. Then it...
1: But, again, I don't know so, that it's – because the, the rules are – the way that I've always kind of conceived of a hard fork is that the rules are backwards compatible, right? So old nodes could continue to, like, operate. Um, that's a soft fork. Yeah, that's a soft fork. Sorry. That, uh, the yeah. way I've always conceived of a soft fork. Uh, the way a hard fork I've always conceived is that, like, old nodes would not be compatible with the new node. So, like, Ethereum 2.0, rebuilt from the ground up because they couldn't yeah. figure dick out. So uh, that's a hard fork. But to me, a soft fork when every like when everything is compatible with the old system, I don't think UASF is a a, a hard fork. I don't. It's not. It's certainly it's not, not a traditional soft
0: fork. Yeah, but it's not compatible with the original rules uh, with old nodes in the beginning because the old nodes are are you know. Well, I, I guess it is because yeah. they're going to be making you can smaller give it blocks. Some of the name. Yeah, my main point was that it is really bad for users. Uh, Call a spork. Yeah. So my idea then was maybe what you could do is uh, slightly more uh, – something that's a little bit safer for users, uh, but still very annoying for miners. What you would do is you would basically say, okay, if somebody mines a block that does not signal SegWit, um, we don't accept it. Um, and if they do it again, we also don't accept it. But after three or four, we're going to accept it anyway, and then we're going to reset the clock.
1: Oh, interesting. So like and you just kind of presume –
0: yeah, and you kind of try to increase the orphan rate for miners somehow to a point where it's painful for them, but not uh, too bad for the user. So something you just like you that. punish the miners? Yeah, but not in a way that you get giant reorcs, but you do punish them with, like, four deep reorcs or something like that. I don't know if it would actually work, though.
1: I don't think that would, though, because, like, you would then... You'd, you'd handicap those miners by two times... Uh, they'd have to burn two times as much energy to uh, to, to get their block... Or three times, in your scenario, with three blocks... To get their and their block accepted.
0: Yeah, that's pretty annoying, right? Oh, that'd be really annoying. Also expensive. I don't know that that's it's any goal. different. Well, it's any the reason it's not different for the miners, hopefully, but it's different for the users because they never get to deal with large reorgs. Whether or not you are using a UASF node, the worst you're gonna get is like a three block reorg within these rules. And so you're you're not like in danger of seeing your balance evaporate. So it's basically a way to harm the miners, but not harm the users. Right.
1: Oh, so you're okay. So your contention is essentially that this the the UASF harmed both the miners and the users. Yes. Yeah. Like I, very, I, very I, I don't think well, you're wrong. Uh, I think you're correct about that. I I just wouldn't put in the hard fork category. At least not in what we traditionally think of as a hard fork.
0: Yeah, that's fine. It has the same like bad consequences. Yeah, I can uh, I, I can agree with that. Yeah. So Luke would then probably say, well, but, you know, if you didn't accept UASF, you were not a user or, or something like that. Yeah, well, or... Luke would say a lot of things. So he says a lot of things, but he is very consistent. Yeah. So I don't always <laughs> agree with him, but he has like a very specific theory of the world, and I'm still trying to understand his theory. Um, so, and that's where, you know, that I think that's great. Now, contrast that with someone like a Craig Wright who just utters completely random, incoherent sentences. Right. You know, the, the one thing that
1: I do, I, I generally don't disagree with Luke, by the way. Like, most of the time, I think he's pretty good. I think he overstates his case sometimes. But the one thing I do mm-hmm. really disagree with him on is this oh, notion yeah. of the algorithm Oh, I agree with him change. a lot
0: on a lot of things. So
1: He seems, yeah. he seems very obsessed with, like, a proof-of-work change, which I think is a big, dangerous idea.
0: Yeah, I would not be a fan of that. What but, the... I'm, you know, I'm happy that some people are a fan of it. Like, you know, those discussions should be had, and, you know, we'll listen to the arguments. I'll listen to the arguments. Yeah, I think you I have, mean, have to. I have think have that's... influence on it, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, well, what's funny about Luke is I think Luke is willing to argue things he doesn't necessarily even believe.
0: Oh, or he might. For the but purpose my... of being
1: the devil's advocate.
0: Oh, that too, yes. And that is super useful too. Um, let's see. So, oh, we can talk about proof of work if you want. Yeah, I would love to. Uh, so, I kind of like SHA-256. I think I recently tweeted, like, several reasons why I like it. Um, not because it's interesting in any way. Like, it's not an interesting, beautiful, elegant algorithm or anything like that. Is that why you like it, though? Because it's uninteresting? No. Why I like it is is that it is simple, relatively. Like, you can implement it in a day in Python or whatever you want. Um or less, if you're actually good, um, it is old. You know, it's been around for a while, so we've had time to see problems with it, um, and it's now widely deployed on you know seven millimeter or seven nanometer hardware. Um, so it is really expensive on special purpose seven nanometer hardware. So if a government or some other entity suddenly wanted to get uh, a lot of that stuff, a lot of mining hardware. At the very minimum, that would you know be noticed. You know the supply chain would suddenly be like, who the hell is buying enormous amounts of these chips? And vice versa, if you are a part of this super secretive organization um, that is, for whatever reason, buying a giant amount of mining hardware, I'd say that's the dumbest attack you can think of. But let's say you would, um, you have no um, what do you call that? Like other explanation? Like pl- right. you have no plausible deniability. If, if you have a CPU-based coin, for example, you can have all sorts of reasons why you're buying a billion CPUs Right. You know, because you're Google or you know, because you're the NSA and you want to wiretap people, and that just needs a lot of CPU power. But then you know, the NSA might, if they wanted to and, uh, or order Google to, install a little program mm-hmm. that, when needed, suddenly attacks, attacks some sort of chain in some pre-specified way. How much insight is the there field. into that supply chain, though? I don't know. I would be very curious, for example, for coins like Monero to know how many CPUs there are on the world and what percentage is used for mining. Because if it turns out that, say, half the world's CPUs are used for mining, which I don't think is the case, but if that were the case, or at least half the world's like easily deployable CPUs are used for mining, then CPU mining is fine, in my opinion, because it's not that easy to to, to 51 attack it.
1: Um well, I had Ricardo on a, a little 14%. while ago talking about that. Mm-hmm. He was saying that that's kind of how they caught uh, the people with ASICs on Monero. Yeah, was exactly. That... And that was just a small attack, right? Yeah, but they, what what they did is they realized that there was more computer power being put on than there were all of the you know GPUs being uh, you know built in the world.
0: Right. Okay. But then you're noticing that ASICs are actually being used, but it's kind of too late. Um, You know, you're too late if if you can't resort to, like, hard forks as quickly as Monero can. Yeah.
1: Well, they only like, can because it's a culture in... of hard forks, right?
0: But in, in the Bitcoin scenario, like, you would notice it on supply chain. Like, you would have Apple issuing a quarterly report saying we cannot ship the next iPhone because there is just no uh, chip manufacturers currently available because they have this mystery project. Like, it, it just means that, you know, half the world's chip manufacturers go missing. Do these ASICs get used if they're, if they're in other things? If they ASICs enough to beat Bitcoin.
1: Like, mm-hmm. is, is there a reason to have an ASIC in an iPhone? Is that is that a thing? Like, do they like are ASICs used elsewhere? Just, but, no, the...
0: but, but, but ASICs are just chips, right? No, right. Chips are made somewhere. But, but I mean, like so the, the SHA-256 past-
1: algo, is that like something that you need a chip for in like a computer?
0: Uh, I think most common processors have some optimizations for SHA-256, but ASICs are like much better for that.
1: Right, well, they literally just do that.
0: (laughs) Yes, right. And that's nice because it means that if you're some organization buying a shit ton of ASICs that can only do SHA-256, well, you know, then everybody in that organization will understand what it's for, whereas if you're buying CPUs, it could be for anything. Right. Well, they're finding that in Venezuela,
1: too, by the way. The government confiscates ASICs, but it doesn't confiscate the GPUs. Why not? Well, because you might be a video gamer, right? But they're confiscating the ASICs because they know that's for
0: mining. You might be a video gamer if you have like fifty video cards.
1: Yeah, you're 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 buying like a hundred uh, GPUs or air video cards, and uh,
0: and yeah, you're video gamer. Yeah, you're a gamer. That that that, w- <laughs> that sounds plausible in a country with rule of law, but not in Venezuela. Yeah, they would just. I would expect to just confiscate it. Well, I'm Why sure that, they. I'm sure
1: they will eventually because like they might even be doing it now because. But that was just a lot of the miners turned to. Uh, turned to GPUs in order to obfuscate the fact that they were mining because the government would just show up and take their ASICs. Uh,
0: by the way, I don't think it's the government, as in it's not government um, actors,
1: individuals in the government. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah, it's, I'm with it's you.
0: individuals who used to work for the government but now work are probably acting on their own behalf or like some subsection of. They're using government resources. Well, so you're they are not. You're saying you know, that because,
1: yeah, you're saying that because you understand that you know, there's a private key.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's, a, it's a big difference, right? Because it's huge. If, if there was a, like, executive order all the way from the top in Venezuela to say, we are going to mine Bitcoin and we're going to do that by confiscating from our civilians, that could happen, but there's no evidence for that. Correct. Right? The, the evidence is just that, that random people are confiscating equipment and using it for their own benefit. Um, it would be very interesting if it was mandated from the top, so I'd, I'd love to know that if that was the case. What do you think uh, but about... A like sorry. A sanctioned country would actually do this. Like uh, the, the OFAC thing that happened yesterday, if I was Iran you uh, know, and, and I was worried that somehow the miners would start censoring this, which I don't think is realistic, but let's say you were worried, well, then you just mine yourself. You only need 1% of the hash power or, or, or some right. larger percentage. It's every 100 blocks,
1: you mine those transactions yeah. that are OFAC unapproved.
0: Yeah, and then the question could be okay. Um, are would OFAC then force you know every other miner to orphan those blocks? But then you have the question of how much money can you force people to spend on enforcing regulations because that's expensive to reorg blocks, and it's not. You know they're they're not asking banks to spend a million dollars on preventing things. Right. I you know I've talked to a number of miners recently.
1: And mm-hmm. I've heard something really consistent from them, which is a little weird, didn't realize this, but apparently Iranians are trying so hard
0: to get their hands on miners. Like you wouldn't believe. Well, of course. If they if they have difficulty exporting oil, or if they're not getting, you know, enough for that oil compared to what they could get if they turn it into Bitcoin, then they should be buying miners. And they might just want it as a backup plan. I'm hearing that is isn't Iran just exporting oil to China. Basically, I'm, I'm hearing that what will what
1: that Iranians are contacting uh, mining sellers, and they're mm-hmm. offering to do things like show up in China with cash.
0: So you could just you should just run the numbers. Like right? you have to look at how much is a barrel of oil, and how many bitcoins can you mine from a barrel of oil if you turn the oil into electricity in some efficient capacity and then you can see whether or not Iran should be buying bitcoin miners it's a simple calculation i haven't done it it is interesting cuz like if, if you have these countries that for
1: example clean up their act in terms of energy like we stop using fossil fuels and there's just no market for fossil fuels it it does it does mean that there's a simple way to dump these fossil fuels you just burn them
0: yeah but for them i mean for oil you don't have to burn it you just put it in barrels and you keep it
1: well, that but that's what I mean, though. Like with with oil, let's say that there was no, no more need for oil. If uh, if a lot of countries started getting away from oil, you you have all electric cars, and like oil is just a thing of the past. Like
0: you can, and then oil gets really cheap. Oil gets really cheap,
1: and uh, and and it might be that it's just a better option to burn it for Bitcoin.
0: <laughs> yes, which would be well, really there, there interesting. This, um, I think I sent you that link recently. Right, There's uh-huh. this guy in Canada who apparently has this rig that you can use to turn gas into Bitcoin. Are you skeptical of that? Uh, yes. I'm, you, know, you should always be skeptical, but I have no reason to assume that he's not honest or anything, but um, you should always be skeptical. Um, so basically the claim is that, that what he does is he has, a, there's some gas in the north of Canada that they apparently like just leaks and they just burn it and so he he puts a generator on it essentially just a standard generator and then he uses that to mine bitcoin using one of those you know miners in a box kind of structures and that could very well be true and it could make sense but then somebody on in his uh, commented on that tweet being and he was very skeptical he say well that's that's super unsafe and gas companies would never accept that at scale because of the the explosion hazard etc cetera, etc cetera. Um right, you were saying that it creates a child. I have point. no well, it sounded like he knew this critic this crit, uh this critical person sounded like he knew what he was talking about. And and I can't think of a reason why you would want to diss a random like project like this. Right. Right? But I, I have no expertise in this area, so I'm just that's just what I've heard. Um I love it if it's if it does actually work, and I'm glad that people are trying this. In theory it does make sense that if you have energy trapped somewhere and you can't just keep it forever then you turn it into bitcoin. Absolutely. Well, I like that the random
1: the random energy uh burning projects cuz like there are places where there's just energy kind of being wasted and there's other places where there's kind of weird free energy so like I remember that Tesla the Tesla miner.
0: Um yes, but that doesn't last long.
1: No, but I still like that because like Tesla had that program where they were doing uh free energy forever for people that bought the well, S. Yeah. That's dumb. Yeah. So like someone put an, a, a miner in the back of their car and just plugged it in and it was just well, it was making me laugh my ass off. I thought I thought it was such a great use of that.
0: Right. There's this general pattern, right? Where Bitcoin finds weaknesses that already exist in society. Yeah. And so insecure software. So you get ransomware, mm-hmm. uh, free electricity. So you get miners. Um, there's there's a whole bunch of these things.
1: It's a and, it's a subsidy and, uh, sucker. If you're not going to spend money on security, if you're not gonna you know if you're gonna have subsidized
0: cheap energy, then Bitcoin shows yeah. up and eats it. Now there's you know from my understanding, a lot of mining happens in places where there used to be uh, aluminum smelting, um, and then you have some hydro uh, hydro dam, and at some point the water you know you have to let it go because otherwise the dam breaks. And if there's no aluminium smelter and no other industry right there that needs it, then, yeah, it may, could make sense to my Bitcoin using that excess hydro. Uh, and it could even make sense now to build hydro dams in the absolute middle of nowhere, where there is absolutely no industry whatsoever, and nobody wants industry there because there's no rivers um, to ship your whatever stuff you're producing, and there's no roads. Like, there's there's places in, say, eastern Russia uh, you know the the place where Alaska meets Russia? Right. There are there are no roads of like no highways anyway, and no railroads within 2,000 kilometers in each direction.
1: I mean that's true. That there, uh, there might be places where there's land at like 25 cents an acre somewhere that nobody wants because it's you know the Darien Gap kind
0: of thing. And,
1: yeah, but then uh, and nobody there's uh, one there? energy
0: source in it. Yeah, yeah. There, there could be. There, there's <laughs> mountains again, Eastern Russia. There's mountains there. There's rivers there. Maybe it makes sense to just build random giant hydro dams and and mine Bitcoin with it. We'll, we'll probably see some crazy, uh, crazy things.
1: Yeah, people are really uh, creative. That's that's something I will say. Is like I'm I'm amazed. It's a bit cold there. Yeah, well, that might be good.
0: Well, water doesn't <laughs> move when it's frozen, right? So. <laughs> So well, those kind of problems. So then what but, you
1: do, here's what you do Shores is you you take your miners and you put them at the head of the stream. And and what you just
0: stream if it's frozen,
1: you you melt it with the miners. That's all I'm saying. Just melt Jesus.
0: it. Jesus. <laughs> maybe that could work like I guess if you start in summer and you have the whole thing flowing and then you have a bit of a battery. Yeah, and then you but, just you just uh you just melt the snow. But I mean, you know as well as I do. But that's not enough to power anything.
1: No, but but the I mean, Ice is going to be the top, you know, 12 inches or 24 inches. Um, it's not going to be all the way down. You're still going to have flowing water. Yeah,
0: but there's not going to be any streaming rivers to fill up your dam. That's the problem. That's true. But the uh, the most extreme idea I had here was, um, do you remember this this article from a year ago where NASA saves the world or had a plan to save the world? Um, because you guys have this Yosemite problem. Yes. Yeah. Um, and that's literally a problem. Like the thing is going to explode at some point, and then like that's the end of the world. But pretty much, but uh, it's great because yes. we get to
1: we get to watch. In the meantime, we get to watch these beautiful hot springs explode from the ground. Yes, but it is a giant. But, it's a giant volcano underneath America.
0: Just yeah, enormous. That's going to explode. And and so they came up with a plan, or at least not really a plan, but sort of a proposal of how you could potentially uh, diffuse that bomb. Um basically they would cool it down over like a 10,000 year period.
1: Oh, wow. And I
0: think the way, I think the way to cool it down is they would dig holes into it, not in the middle because then it could explode accidentally, uh, but on the sides and you can let the water in and kind of cool the volcano down from the sides carefully. So it doesn't explode. Um, so, so part of the thing that they'll have to research, you know, is to make sure that it really doesn't accidentally explode. Uh, but that would potentially um, fix it, and then my thought is, okay, if you're if you're throwing cold water into you know, deep holes into a volcano, you're then gonna steam tons, is going to come out,
1: tons of steam.
0: Yeah, and there's nobody lives anywhere near that place, so my guess is there's a lot of potential electricity there, that just you know you could build a bunch of cables, like a bunch of electricity wires, all around Yosemite to trying to get that energy to California or some other place that needs it. So that, and that might make more sense if you can do it. But if you can't, or at least in the meanwhile, you could use Yosemite to basically mine Bitcoin. That would be hilarious. Yes. So I'm, <laughs> Yeah. I'm looking forward to see some of these really crazy things happening.
1: Yeah. I, I'm, I'm of the belief that we're going to start seeing more of that as soon as a lot of these shit coins start to shake out. I want to see them start to die. Once that happens, I'm already
0: seeing a sentiment of, of Bitcoin maximalism, of mainstream Bitcoin maximalism. Maybe it's just my filter bubble, but I'm starting to get that sense that more people are starting to realize that Bitcoin is. Quite well, I'm different. just
1: slowly watching Bitcoin increase its sort of market dominance. You know, we dropped below 50% for a while, and, and now I'm starting to watch it slowly creep up, get those like half percent gains on everything.
0: But and it's not I think just the market that matters, it's also the discourse. Like, well, what are of course the discourse matters, about?
1: but like, I'm saying the discourse is going to affect that, right? So I'm, looking, I'm just looking at it like right around 54% now, and I'm not seeing these like wild shifts anymore. I think the way it's going to happen is that these other coins are just going to kind of slowly die, and we'll just stop hearing people talk about them. That's what happened with BitShares, yeah. if you remember. No one talks right, about it just- anymore.
0: And for some coins, my guess is that the people who are still talking about it are paid to talk about it or, like, you know, it's their coin. But, uh, you know, some coins are probably still living strong.
1: Yeah. I mean, yeah. Ethereum. Yeah,
0: <laughs> But I haven't heard anything from uh, Tron recently. No, me neither. So I haven't paid attention either. Like, Twitter does have a bit of a filter bubble. It's true. So it's quite possible that there are, like, super active coins out there, but... But you're right. I think there, there's more attention now to Bitcoin and a little bit less to the others. But that could change. Like, I could imagine if there's another price rally, there's going to be a whole new generation of, of Bitcoin killers Well, that's kind of out what, there.
1: That's kind of what I assume is that every few years you're going to have this giant big increase in price and you're going to see a bunch of new coins that will creep up. And they just like it, the, the, the entire market will get more and more and more bifurcated
0: yeah I would expect that the people who have lived through the two thousand and seventeen pump will be a little bit more skeptical of these new projects yeah, but if there is a pump in the Bitcoin price, it has to be because there's a lot more people piling onto it, which means there's a lot more people again to pile into all these other nonsense.
1: Well, I thought also so, what was interesting about the previous the, this last cycle was that you know you had you went from everything as a Bitcoin killer, remember to now things are ethereum mm-hmm. killers and ripple killers. And,
0: uh, well,
1: Ethereum is an Ethereum killer. Ethereum is 100% an Ethereum killer, but like EOS is a Ethereum killer, and I think Tron was an Ethereum killer. And so like the last cycle, everything was describing itself as an Ethereum killer. So if we see yeah. one of these like kind of creep up, I think you'll see another like round of like, well, now we're the uh, Litecoin killer. Stablecoin killer? Or stablecoin killer, or whatever the fuck it is. Well, MakerDAO is a stablecoin killer, remember? So
0: that that's the new one. Die. Oh, man. I have no idea. I mean I also wonder whether this ICO thing can happen again cuz that was just weird. Like oh. where you have tokens that represent absolutely nothing
1: and you well, know you maybe mean my my sort of take on it when I was talking to Sasha. I mean literally you you have nothing. Yeah. And I I can't even I can't even begin to understand what people think that they have. They literally
0: have well, they... nothing. They have nothing that they can sell to another person for slightly more. For no reason. I mean, and, like I said, there's, there's literally
1: nothing there. There's no company. There's no backing. It means nothing.
0: But and, you've read all the South Sea Bubble stuff. Yes. I, mean, I heard about that book thanks to you, your podcast. So uh, we know that this dynamic exists. And if I think the total market for that type of scam... Well, we've seen historically it can be like half the GDP of a country. Sure. Well, that's so that's Algeria, it, right? That means Albania, that the Albania. total market cap for for you know all altcoins, ICOs, and whatever new thing is there, the total potential market cap is half the world GDP. So I don't think this is over yet.
1: <laughs> I I'm not in. Oh, that, that'll be very bad if it's true. But it could be or it could be 10x to the global GDP, like it could be absolutely insane. Here's the difference between the South Sea bubble and this. The South Sea bubble was a company that claimed that they were a company, right? They offered equity in something, and what they did is they falsified they did shipping not disclose routes. yeah,
0: they didn't disclose that they had nothing.
1: Yes, they, well, they didn't disclose that they had very little, and they they had a lot of ships that they parked off of like Brazil and stuff. And uh, and that just didn't move, but that they would say they had, and that they, these shipping channels are opened, and you know it, it took a lot of sophisticated looks into like what they were actually doing to kind of figure out that they were doing nothing.
0: Yeah, in a time where people did not have a lot of access to you know knowledge in general. Right.
1: The other difference is
0: that the the but way it, in but which it was the best informed aristocrats that bought all that stuff.
1: It's true. The the other difference though that that was really important. Is that uh, all of that money was? I think put into the England to England's coffers and sort of given like as a loan, and England would have gone bankrupt. I think if it hadn't been for the South Sea Bubble.
0: Yeah, that could be. So what? My point is that the bubble can be as big as the world economy. Yeah, what's no, no, that's, that's true.
1: I think. Well, I think. I think that the is that I think Albania. I think is a really great. Example of that where like basically their entire economy was Ponzi schemes.
0: Was that the naturally occurring Ponzi scheme? No,
1: no. The the naturally occurring Ponzi scheme uh, was a paper by, I think, the not the UN, the World Bank.
0: Yeah, I still need to read that.
1: Yeah, they just they just talked about how a lot of things in the world look like Ponzi schemes um, and that they're Mm -hmm. quasi naturally occurring. But 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 the 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 the, Albania. Um, the Albania thing is really interesting because what happened is there was just like this proliferation of Ponzi schemes, and they got so big that people like just continued to pour money into them. Politicians began putting their logos on their websites during campaigns and everything else, and the whole mm-hmm. country kind of exploded and it ended up in a civil war. So, what well, ended exactly up exactly? Happening... The South Sea bubble. Yeah, it's a well, civil war. Well, minus the Civil War and minus the fact that it was it wasn't quite a Ponzi, it was just a scam. It was a different kind of scam. Uh, the, but the Albania one is is interesting because what what's ended up happening is we've gotten on a, on a large scale the opportunity to study how to unwind economies when their entire economy is a scam. Yeah, but I, I do agree. And then... I think that there's a lot of room for those ICOs, and I, I don't want that. But it does... It's going to be something else.
0: Like, I mean, ICOs are so 2017 now. They but really are. It's going to be something else. Man. Well, George, I don't want to take up too much of your time, and
1: we can have you on any time, uh, and this is absolutely wonderful. So let me let me let you go. Well, thanks for having me. Absolutely. And,
0: uh, yeah, it was fun, too. Yeah, uh, I, I love
1: to- it. It's kind of a free-flowing conversation, uh, and... And I, you're
0: just a wealth of knowledge. I love following you on Twitter. Do you want to tell people where they can follow you? Uh, at Provost. So that's a P-R-O-V-O-O-S-T. Um, awesome. On Twitter. You want to, yeah. do this, you want to do sign off? This is Johnson. Chuck it up the Deuce of the South.
1: <laughs> the masses that go in peace. St. Catherine, pray for us. Bye-bye. Bye.